Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is digital curator for contemporary collections at the British Library. After graduating from Aberystwyth University with a degree in library studies and art history, my guest was awarded an MA in museum studies at the University of Leicester. Then, having worked as a curator of maps at the National Library of Scotland, in 2010 they joined the British Library and began to devise creative reuses of digital collections, including via video games. This work has led to collaborations with the National Video Game Museum, Adventure X, International Games Month in libraries, and on research projects with UCL's Institute of Education and Lancaster University's LitCraft initiative, which builds literary worlds in Minecraft. Welcome, Stella Wisdom. I Can I correct something there? Of course you can, yeah, yeah. I joined the British Library in 2006. 2006, okie doke. But I became a digital curator in 2010. Ah, okay, that's where I've got it wrong. I'm sorry. No, 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 that, that, that's, that's okay. So, Stella, you've got um, 
You've got an amazing surname. Did you have a notoriously wise ancestor? <laughs> no, I think the only the only famous person I'm aware of with the surname Wisdom is Norman Wisdom, the comedian. <laughs> right, yeah, deceased yeah. Deceased yeah. now. Not related then? No. Well, there's not that many wisdoms around, so it could be. Yeah, amazing. You go fa- back far enough, I'm sure. So, so tell, tell us, I'm sure like listeners will be curious, what what happens in a in a typical day in, in your job as curator of digital collections at the British Library? Um, I don't think there is... A typical day. In fact, what one of the things I most enjoy about my job is the variety. So my priority is to kind of promote innovative research using the library's digital collections yes. and also um, research, so kind of R&D, looking at how we collect complex digital and, and work with kind of born digital collections. Not quite sure what a typical day is in the life of a digital curator at the library, but it's, it's kind of very varied. Yeah. So I, I've been to the British Library like quite a few times. Amazing building in King's Cross. Uh, I'm assuming that's the only British library. There's not multiple. We've got sites in Yorkshire, and when I first joined, oh, you have, yeah. yeah when okay. I first joined the British Library, I was based at the at the Yorkshire site um, in Boston Spa. Um, so, oh, nice. kind of large large complex complex of about thirty two buildings. Oh, cool. Okay. So <laughs> the library's collections are very vast. Yeah. Um, and and kind of we do have colleagues working at the site in the north as well as the site in the south. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, the only one I've been to is the one in Kings Cross, and it's a hugely impressive building. It's always filled with people who are, I assume, sort of working on their, you know, students, university students working on stuff, and authors and things like that. And I've used the reading rooms there. It's fantastic. And there's this sort of massive multi-story bookcase. King, the King's Library is that what is that what it's called? Gla- are, you, are you are you talking about the glass tower? Yeah, that sort of runs up like a spine. It is right? it is fantastic. It is it, so this is the glass tower. So for folks that haven't visited the British Library, um, this is a real kind of feature of the building. It, it's it's the King's Library, so it's filled with rare book collection that that was basically left to the library it's one of our foundational collections and you can see the spines of the books through the glass what's most exciting to me though is is readers can request oh, you can. to see these books in the reading room so occasionally if you're very very lucky you see the shelves move and someone walk around with a trolley oh that's so cool yeah and that, um, i mean you know it's very obvious that it's a library because it's got that you get to see it when you come in but but i wasn't actually aware that you had lots of digital artifacts in the library as well so where are where are those kept and how do people access them and what kind of things are in there it's a good question i suppose our biggest digital collection is probably the uk web archive Good. so folks might not realize that we do an annual crawl of the uk web oh really and we have what we call nodes um at the british library site but also with the other national libraries in the united kingdom so national library of scotland and national library of wales so so we're talking servers really where where digital collections are stored are stored on servers but then kind of backed up for digital preservation reasons right so if i wanted i could go and see a snapshot of the internet from 2008 or something but in the uk yes in in in, in our reading room so so if you were to come into our reading room you could access the uk web archive and look at some like you say captures of sites going back um we've been We've been, we've been web archiving for quite a while, but we're just celebrating 10 years of UK legal deposits and um, where we've been kind of had a mandate to to do web archiving for the nation. So, so yeah, it's um, pretty comprehensive and exciting. Oh, wow. There's some uh, there's probably some articles I wrote around that time that I'd like to break in and delete from that archive. But <laughs> which <laughs> I guess, guess that's not allowed. That's probably not in the spirit of web archiving. No, I suppose not. 
Oh dear. Well, uh, and then you, you, you've obviously got the internet there, and I guess you've got digital versions of books and things like that. But do you also keep video games in in that digital archive? We've been collecting what we call emerging formats. So, so, and some of these works other people might call a video game. Um, so, so what we're kind of talking is maybe rightly, rightly games, interactive narratives, interactive fiction, yeah. these kinds of works. And in, in fact. In, in my job working with digital collections, what I've been trying to kind of understand is what might be scope for the library to collect under UK legal deposits. Um, so so it, it's quite, it's, it's, it is a bit difficult. I mean, the, the, you can start having kind of big questions of what's a video game or what's a book. And, and really what we've been kind of looking at is some of these quite rightly interactive works yeah. that some people might, might want to call the book and other people might want to call the video game. Yeah, yeah kind of hard to pin <laughs> pin them down um do you do you have to approach the ip rights holders for that so so like if you wanted to put a game that was developed in the uk grand theft auto or something you you, you wouldn't be able to do that because of legal reasons or could you ask well, grand, for... grand theft auto is probably not the type of game that would be <laughs> under scope for uk legal deposit because okay. because we're kind of looking at kind of rightly and narrative content okay they might contest that. Some of the writers on that game might say, this this is literature. Maybe. And I, and I have been aware of filmmakers that have been doing some interesting experiments with Grand, Grand Theft Auto. With the types of works that we have been looking at and that we're featuring in the library's digital storytelling exhibition, which is open at the moment and runs to the 15th of, of October this year, we... We have been, with the works that we've been collecting, we have been working with the creators and the publishers to collect them. Um, So under UK legal deposit, it's the same. People often say, does the British Library collect a copy of every book? And we can do, um, but we've kind of, we rely on the publishers to send us copies of these books. So it's the same with with digital. Um, So it's it's kind of working with the publishers to collect these works. We have got a right to collect publications. So if if we're treating, if we're treating what some people might define as a video, game as a publication and we would have a right to claim it but because we're kind of trying to understand how to collect and curate and preserve these types of works it's definitely more meaningful to work with the creators and do it with their support and permissions it's very much a kind of collaborative and and kind of very respectful partnership work at the the moment Mm. that was super interesting so i mean you know lots of people who work in the games industry listen to this this show, if anyone is, uh, you know, interested in getting in contact with the British Library to deposit their their writing for games, is that something they can do? They can email you. Yep, they can do. Um, there is there is um, a legal deposit um, site on on the British Library website, and that gives full details of how to, how people can deposit their publications. Hmm. Um, so so yes, do get in touch. We've also got a page for our emer- emerging formats research, and I would imagine if it's someone in the kind of games industry with more experimental works, they would probably be best um, having a look at the emerging format page and contact us in that their that address. The game is on an interactive website though there is a nomination form for the uk web archive so so anyone can nominate a website it, it, it's it's that's probably the best thing to do if, if something's on it like say a browser-based browser game, game. Yeah. yeah and we and that's where we've had quite a lot of success collecting actually because because of the technology for web archiving how interesting amazing well stella i've asked you to Pick the five video games that you would like to put on your very own fictional games machine and put out to the world. Um, could you start by telling us about your your first game? What is it, and uh, and why do you love it? So, started with eighty days.
for folks that have not played 80 Days, um, this is a literary adaptation of Jules, Jules Verne's novel Around the World in 80 Days. The lead writer is Meghna Jian. This is a very, very wordy game. So so one of the reasons I've kind of picked pick this, kind of there's apparently the claim there's more more words in in this than than kind of Tolkien. So Really? So yeah, it's and I've probably not there's endless variations. So you, you get to play as Phileas Fogg's um, valet, Passepartout, and you travel the world. And obviously the aim is to tra- to travel around the world before before eighty days and to win the wager. No. But you can I don't know whether I'm quite a naughty player because sometimes I've gone on real kind of detours and I know I'm not going to make it around the world in eight days, but you end up with some quite interesting kind of thing, thing things happening. Mm-hmm. Um, the mechanics of the, of the game are interesting. You you can buy and sell objects when you go to different places. You can go to the bank and withdraw funds. You can talk to different people and have different encounters mm-hmm. and every, everything you do affects what routes open up uh, and how quickly you're able to kind of travel or, or the different destinations that kind of open up. It's it, it's really fun. Yeah, it's a spectacular game, absolutely. And like you say, it's um, very literary as well. Meg, who is who was quite young when she wrote it, I think, but uh, it's probably far longer than the actual novel on which it's based now, I would have thought, in terms of word count. <laughs> We have displayed it alongside a oh, you have? copy of the novel in the in the library. So if anyone comes to the exhibition, we, we thought it was quite nice to display the actual an actual edition of the printed novel mm-hmm. next next to the interactive if game that it's based on. We've also printed out a map of the different um, options and journeys that you can do. Oh, so, so cool! So it's yeah, it, it's it's really fun. What I, what I do quite like is obviously you have to keep Volk happy, and if so, if you don't, I don't know, comb his hair or or talk to him or keep keep him happy, that can that kind of kind of affect how things go as well. It's um, yeah, yeah, lots of lovely details, isn't that? And a great great idea to the perspective through viewing it through his valet rather than the the typical protagonist. It's just fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So tell me, um, tell me, Stella, where did you where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in Warwickshire, um, so be- called Bedworth. Probably not many people have heard of it. It's, I suppose it's near Coventry. That's probably the biggest place that Bedworth is near. Yeah, village type vibes, was it? It is a town. It's a small town. Were you into were you into sort of books, and reading, and uh, maps and libraries and all that stuff when you were when you were a kid? I was. I was. I was a bit of a nerdy child. I suppose it's stereotypical avoiding PE. I hated sports and PE. Yeah. And so I'd go and hide in the library. So I do look back on my school days and think, so libraries have always been a kind of place of refuge and sanctuary for me. Oh, lovely. Yeah, they do have that feel, don't they? This is like a lovely smell in a library of all the books and uh, hopefully nice and quiet as well. Did, was that the, your school library then that you were going to, or was there one in the in the village as well? Bedworth had a had a library in the town. In fact, I'm so nerdy. I did my school work experience there. Oh, you did? No way. I did, and I do thank Bedworth Library for making me want a career working in libraries. It's. I remember thinking it, it's. I had a great a great time. They let me organise. A Beatrix Potter party for children and Aww. curate a section on heavy metal and rock music for the teenage section. I had a blast. It was it was really fun. Um, so that kind of put me on the path to wanting to work in libraries. But I never dreamed I'd I'd end up at the Brit- British Library and working with complex digital collections. Yeah, that's not what I imagined when when I was when I was young. That's so cool. When you do your Beatrix Potter party, didn't. And and think you'd end up at the uh, the country's largest library. So good, absolutely. 
And what uh, what role did, did video games play for you when you were kids? Did you have a console or a PC or anything like that? I'm quite old, Simon, so I don't want to totally confess how old. <laughs> but I'm, I'm probably older than what you might think. So I, ha- I had quite an analogue childhood, but when... Probably when I was, so I didn't have a computer. I, I do remember computers being introduced into the classroom, but we're talking kind of early BBC computers. So, because this was the eighties, so it was, so I was at school in in the eighties. But some of my some of my friends who I grew up with on the same street as me did have a Sega Mega Drive. So I would sneak around their house and play Sonic, and I was absolutely terrible. Yeah, but that was great fun, and and so it was kind of really going around friends' houses, and it really was like I say. I remember a lot of Mario and and Sonic, but we're talking like early nineties yeah. in the times. Yeah, was your library one of those libraries in the eighties that had computers that you could go and play games on, or or was it strictly, um, you know, books and cassettes? I don't think it was definitely books and cassettes and, and, and music on CDs. But like I say, we're talking about the eighties, and really? and the people's network hadn't arrived in into libraries. So that's when they put internet in libraries. That happened when I was an adult. Right, okay. So I remember I remember that I remember that happening. In fact, the internet was very very new. Like, so so to put it into context, I went to university in nineteen ninety six. And at the time, in the kind of mid-90s, I thought that every university had the internet. And it, it was only much later that I realised it. First of all, it was universities that had computer science departments. Right. So so I had, like I say, quite an analogue and offline childhood just because of, of, of when it was. But but then I was quite fortunate that I went to university when the internet was... Just all kicking in. It was all kicking in. Yeah. And there was a lot of kind of freedom to make websites and... Um, being an information and library studies student, I did quite a lot of, of shared modules with the computer science department. So nerdy model, mo- module systems analysis and systems design and that that type of thing. But but for me, it was it was kind of engaging in digital that was something that happened to me at university. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Did you did you have a hankering to get your own games console then? By the time you you get to uni and. PlayStation's out, I guess, and all of that kind of thing. Didn't have the funds, sure. Sadly, um, <laughs> didn't squander your uh, student loan on that instead of. Uh... <laughs> no, it, it's um, we 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 did we did. I, I did used to go sometimes to some land parties. So I was a student in in Aberystwyth, but actually Lampeter was probably our nearest other university. So um, sometimes I would go over to Lampeter and and some folks I know would kind of ha- have have land parties around there so again it was oh, kind of right. going around other other people's houses to play games rather than at home what were they playing sort of doom doom kind of stuff or definitely they it, it was it was those types of games yeah yeah very nice all right Stella let's come to your your second game there which is from 2017 I believe so my second game is see you later by by Dan Hett <laughs> It's late. The house is quiet. The kids are asleep. You should be asleep too. You're not asleep. You are in bed, but, like every night, you're semi-autonomously scrolling through the infinitely replenishing feed of message and information through the glowing rectangle of your smartphone. You've read the articles, you know full well what artificial light and electronics does to your sleep, but 
the draw of the internet usually overrules that by some distance. Next to you is your wife, similarly engaged in her own distraction. Your eyes are starting to get tired, which you take as a signal to put the thing down and get some sleep. You're thinking about it when you notice a sudden flurry of activity on social media about something going on in the city. This won the New Media Writing Prize in, in 2020. So I've, I've picked this work because it's created using Twine. I'm very interested in, in Twine because it's open source, it's easily available. And I've done quite a lot of work with encouraging people to make their own interactive fiction mm. um, using Twine. Yeah, so, so just explain how Twine works for anyone, any listeners who don't know what it is. So with Twine... That's a good question. With Twine, you can use it either in the browser or you can kind of download it and you can write your own interactive narratives. The interface looks a bit like a flowchart. So if anyone's pretty experienced of making kind of flowcharts or doing any kind of project management diagrams, getting to grips with Twine would be quite easy. But you can write write your text and then, and then create branching narratives. You can do all sorts of other complex things with Twine as well. There's lots of cookbooks and tutorials out there. But essentially, it's kind of like um, a way to make hypertext narratives. Mm. A bit like choose your own adventure, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And it's very kind of easy to pick up and have, have a go with. You can pick up Twine quite easily in, in a short workshop or, or just kind of playing around. But why I've picked um, See You Later, it's a very serious serious thoughtful work so so dan um lost his brother martin in the 2017 manchester terrorist bombing and dealing with his grief he created a kind of a series of different types of games and I'm, i must admit before becoming aware of, of see you later i was aware of another work the lost levels which i'd seen at somerset house so now I play this as a game festival that happens every year at somerset house and i'd seen the lost levels um, and then being intrigued by that um, i went and read see see you later and so, so even the title of the work, it's the last message that Dan's brother sent to him. Oh, right, yeah. Before he died, it's it's a real, it, yeah, it's an emotional work, um, and interestingly, it, it goes through the night of the bombing, and Dan's personal experiences of that night, not knowing what's happened, whether his brother is one of the deceased, going through all his thought processes. So it literally, it covers quite a short time span, but you can't go backwards. So Dan Dan has deliberately written this work in a way that whatever choice you make, whether you choose to go in the police car or to speak to your family or whatever you do in, in the work, you kind of have to stick to your choice. Whereas with many Twine games, you can go backwards and forwards a bit like like you mentioned choose your own adventure books where you where you could sneak back and go and go back yeah key your finger in the page type thing uh, yeah, exactly but with 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 see, see you later you have to stick to your decisions and that's part of the work so i've got i've kind of picked this because quite often people think with games i'd like to say probably people outside of the video, video game world <laughs> people who are not probably games players or, or or that familiar think it's all kind of maybe fun and quite frivolous topics but but actually th- there's many many thoughtful and thought-provoking and serious and topical works and and so I really wanted to include this because it's challenging but it's it's challenging in a really interesting and, and, and a, yeah thought-provoking way mm, yeah incredible 
you know, sometimes I suppose with these very difficult subjects, there's a game that's just come out um, on PlayStation 5 and PC called, I think it's The Light and the Darkness, which is about the Holocaust. There can be a bit of trepidation because like you say, games is often seen as quite frivolous things, as quite playful, or maybe the idea that because players have agency, perhaps you can make decisions that will avert disaster or tragedy. And so perhaps they're not always used, but you need quite a literate creator to be able to do it in a sensitive way i suppose dan's got that you know it's a, it's his story as much as anything isn't it so. yeah i think the because it's autobiographical i'm quite interested so so i picked i picked 80 days because it's a literary adaptation but i picked see you later because it's an autobiographical hypertext hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home go to prettylitter.com and use code acast for 20 percent off your first order and a free cat toy terms and conditions apply see site for details i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So you um, you graduate and, and get your MA and then you uh, work as a curator of maps at the National Library of Scotland. Is that correct? Yes, I'm an assistant map curator. So what's, uh, yeah, what, what, what sort of maps did you have there? Oh gosh, everything. Again, legal deposits. With legal deposit, that means National Libraries collect cartographic items as well. Mm. So I would be collect, I would be cataloguing a lot of contemporary mapping. So this was kind of the days pre-smartphone. I sound so old. I, I, no. I sound so old, but obviously <laughs> lots of A to Zs and road atlases and all sorts of mapping was coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would I would catalogue those, but also maps in other languages. And my favourite maps were actually fictional maps. So if you get Star Trek maps or, or Winnie the Pooh, um, Hundred Acre Wood, you, you know what I mean? You'd get all sorts of fictional maps coming in, but anything. But is that, is that ones that just the public have made or ones that are coming from the creator? of those work. So we works. so we're talking that the publishers would send them in under UK legal deposits. So these are what publishers are, de- are depositing. I also got to work on early digitisation projects when I was at National Library of Scotland. So so for kudos to to National Library of Scotland, they they've been digitising their map collections for a very long time now. Lots of people use their historic ordnance survey maps that are on their website. But but I was fortunate to be involved in their kind of early digitisation projects, which are really impressive. Yeah, that's so interesting. There's- there's a lot of interest around video game world maps. I would say at the moment, there's a book recently out from Read Only Memory uh, called, I think, uh, An Atlas of Interactivity, something like that. You can search it up anywhere. Let's take. That's um, gone to the library. I hope <laughs> the publishers have sent copies. Yeah. No, absolutely. There is a lot of interesting in the kind of maps on video games, and 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 like I say, with eighty days, we did 
we did um, put an image of the roots. Maps, maps, and games just really go together. Absolutely. How, how does it work when these are obviously fictional places? Um, and you're saying that uh, some of them get deposited in national libraries. Is that based on the nationality of the creator of the work? Um, so like with A.A. A. Milnes and, and 100 Acre Wood, is that? Well, with traditional publications, it would be based on place of publication. I see. Okay. So um, it gets more complicated with digital. All right. But with the material that I'm talking that came in there, it would be the place of publication of the items. So items out of the UK would be probably acquired by purchase rather than legal deposit because you're trying to collect the publishing output of yeah. the United Kingdom. This is quite a technical question, but then I suppose, you know, Let's say Nintendo publishes Legend of Zelda: Tears of the Kingdom in the UK. Uh, would you be able to put the put put the map from that games? Um, it would all depends what's in scope. But like I say, we're looking at what we consider publications. And again, with Zelda, if if they made a book of the images from Zelda and published that in the UK, that's going in. That would be in scope of UK legal deposit. Yeah, it makes sense. Interesting. Okay, let's come to so let's come to your third game then, which is from May 2019. Do you want to tell us about this one? My third game is Astrologaster by Niam Niam. Long ago in England in 1592, there begins our tale, and all of it is true. Through the whole of London, bubonic painting spread, covering folking, weeping sores, and leaving thousands dead. From towns and cities, doctors they did flee, leaving their patients to die in misery. But one brave doctor stayed when all the cowards fled. My doctor knew because he was too sick to leave his bed. Fall and made a plague, you and use it on himself, then left his house for I love this game. So, so Astrologaster is again in the digital storytelling exhibition at the British Library, and you can play this game and see it projected on a wall. What I really like about this work is it's based on a real historical character. So, Simon Foreman. He is infamous, a bit of a John D type character. So, this is an Elizabethan medical comedy. What I love is it. It looks like it, it's. The, the, the design of it is like a digital pop-up book and you turn the virtual pages and they, and they, 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 they pop up and patients visit Simon Foreman and, and I suppose the aim of the game is to collect letters of recommendation. So patients will come and see you and you then consult the stars and try to help them with their problems. They might be medical problems or they might be more personal problems. And if they're happy with you, they'll write you a letter of support and many come back for repeat visits. One of the fun things that I really, really enjoy though is is that little summaries of each patient and what's wrong with them are sung at you as major goals. <laughs> so I was very keen. I'm probably upsetting a lot of visitors to the gallery, but I was very keen that we have the songs as kind of audio audio not on headphones in the gallery so people could hear the hear these songs because i just find them so delightful um and we're having the singers 
coming into the library to perform them live on the 15th oh. of September. Oh, amazing. So if, any, <laughs> if, if, if anyone's a kind of Astrologaster fan and loves the soundtrack as much as I do, yeah. um, and they can they can come along to the library on, on the 15th of September, then, like I say, we'll be having the soundtrack um, sung at the library. Oh, so cool. So is it, are they singing that in, in English or in Latin? Or? In English. So the songs in are in English. Um, okay. So you can hear all the all, all they're, they're singing about the symptoms. Aren't they? Absolutely, they're very funny. They're kind of they're quite right. rude and quite funny. What I should also mention is is Astrologaster has has been a kind of collaboration between the game studio and historians from Cambridge University. The historical research team at Cambridge University digitised manuscripts. So 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 the real kind of manuscripts from Simon Foreman are in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, but they've been mm-hmm. digitised by Cambridge and the historians work with the game developer. So I, I've loved this, the, the fact that you've, you've had historical archives being used by a contemporary game studio to make quite a really quirky quirky comedy comedy game but based on accurate records that are in the archive yeah that's so interesting i mean this is definitely like an area of interest for you isn't it the use of real historical sources and documents and how we can use those in digital reinterpretations i suppose what was it that first got you got you into that area this is a quite a long convoluted story but i first got interested in this because i went to a digital preservation conference but i met um two individuals, um, Ian Simons and James Newman, who yes. founded the um, National Video Game Museum that's in Sheffield. Yes. And But this was before they had the museum in Sheffield. This was a long time ago. Yes. So they were talking to me about the work that they were doing, archiving games and, and their interests. But but they mentioned, um, so at the time, they Ian Simons was running a festival called Game City Festival. Yeah, in, in Nottingham. In Nottingham. So so, so Ian, Ian Simons, who runs Game City Festival, mentioned to me that he was interested in running a competition for students, a, a game-making competition. But he, he was kind of thinking about whether it should have a theme or, or or whether there could be a kind of focus for this, because just setting a challenge to students make a game and it being very open and generic was probably not that helpful so it was actually Ian and, and, and James that asked me could British library collections be used by students making games and at the time so this was back in, this was back in 2012 I said I didn't know I um Encouraged? I was going to say coerced, but I think encouraged is a better word. My colleague Tom Harper, who's Antiquarian Maps Curator at the British Library, to work with me. And we we came up with some themes for a competition. And, and the first competition we did set the Great Fire of London. I was just gobsmacked by the quality of the winning game that year by Pudding Lane Productions. It, they did a kind of walk-in simulator of walking around London before the Great Fire. And it was just so amazing. For me, that proved what you could do. And and, and definitely that, like you say, library and archive collections could be used in this way. Well, what were they drawing from then to recreate London that's in the collection? We picked several map, maps out, including the, I remember a very detailed Visha map. I normally I would normally I would have these in front of me to look at, but it's been a while ago. But I do remember that this had got a detailed depiction of London Bridge. So we're talking the original London Bridge that doesn't exist anymore. Yep. It included the heads on spikes and all sorts of of detail. But, but we provided also a map of the damaged area after the ground after the Great Fire of London, so the students could see the area that was covered, and that's the area that they made of of their walking simulator. But they did it did that area before the fire had happened. So we, we provided 
a, a range of digitized maps and views. Oh, so interesting. From the 17th century. Yeah. Um, it's informed this. Samuel Pepys wrote a lot, didn't he, in his diary about what London was like around that he did. specific time. Yeah. What I found very interesting is the students went and visited the Shambles in book yes, and yes. they measured the width of the streets. They, I was really impressed with the research and detail that they went into to make their to make their interactive walking sim game. Yeah, they made, and they also made the streets of houses modular so that they could have different tops, middles, and, and and bottoms of the houses, and that's how they could make so many street streets and make them look different. But they right. did a fantastic amount of research, like I say, using using the digitized maps, but also going and doing site visits to historical areas to look at street widths and yeah, that level of detail, super impressive. How interesting! That's amazing. Yeah, that that modular architectural techniques used by big game studios as well, isn't it? You know, bits of castles. That they can then arrange to create unique buildings very quickly. Absolutely, it's really it's really kind of fascinating and, cl- and clever. Yeah. So we're sort of you know watching some of these experiments over the last few years that you've you've seen game studios coming in and trying to work with some of these collections. What are some of the lessons that you've you've learned through that? What are what, what I suppose maybe best practice or what, what things particularly always work well? Do you think lesson that I learned learned early on from especially from my point of view is to provide materials that are either public domain or cleared for creative commons right so they're available for reuse um and so it's a kind of rights clearance that's a bit of a boring issue but super important yeah but i suppose it's having meaningful discussions and, and, and thinking through what would make a good game and 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 i know so so the competition that i ran had different themes in different years we had a shakespearean one we had an alice's adventures in wonderland one we we, we picked different topics but i suppose it, it's working with the creators to find what they might find interesting and useful yeah but i do think with cultural heritage organizations by making um out of copyright digitized collections openly available for creative reuse (laughs) that's going to encourage people to do things that you can't even predict yes right Um, and that's where it gets exciting yeah it's like sometimes i've discovered examples of creative reuse that we've not instigated but they've just happened so there's um this is an analogue game rather than a video game, so I don't know whether it's in scope for your podcast, Simon. That's interesting. Yeah, no, go for it. There's a card game called um, Great Scott. Um, that's used to digitise book illustrations, but it, but it's it's a quirky card game about and um, where you 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 make up. It's kind of like a storytelling game where you make up fantastical inventions and yeah. and have to describe them. But each card is, is is basically reused book illustrations from the British Library's Flickr account. Oh, cool! Right. But we didn't instigate this card game. Um, yeah. Sinister Fish Games just went and and made it. But by putting digital collections out there people can do all sorts of things and it is just exciting to see what they do yeah it's so wonderful i think so much of the world and the creative assets are owned by companies and corporations so it's so lovely to have some things that uh you know people can experiment with and and reshape and remix isn't it um you know on, on that topic the present game preservation which you touched on on briefly with um ian simon's work and and his colleagues um, you know, it's such a hot topic at the moment, isn't it? How do we preserve these digital artifacts, video games, things like that? And I had uh, Kelsey Lewin on from the uh, from the Video Game Foundation, and she was talking about the work that that organisation does to try and preserve the stories around the creation of games. But I suppose another challenge is you know, we've been talking about video game virtual worlds and virtual maps and things like that. If you look at games like Fortnite or Call of Duty Warzone, or even you know, I suppose. 
these these expansive environments that people become very attached to and very familiar with, but then they just disappear because one day Epic Games might decide, oh, we're going to drop a new map for Fortnite and the old one is now gone. And there's no way to visit it. Perhaps you can go on YouTube and see a, a clip of it, but it's just a vanished world. What is there anything we can do about that? I do think companies themselves need to engage more with archive in their own works. Um, and And this could have value for them. Um, so Nintendo, you mentioned Nintendo earlier. Nintendo were actually very good at archiving their back catalogue because I think they see obviously commercial benefit in sure. in reusing it in the future. But I really do think the games industry as a whole needs to actively engage in digital preservation. It, it, it's, there seems to be quite a focus on, on the next game out and the next, everything's all about the next title, the next Ooh. game. But I really do think the industry needs to work with digital preservation partners there are um, digital preservation organisations such as the Digital Preservation Coalition. It's a membership organisation, so anyone can join. Commercial partners can join just as much as archives and, and libraries and museums can. But it would be really welcome if if some of the big game studios and publishers did want to participate because we can't solve all these challenges on our own. Yeah, It's only really by collaboration and partnership that you can really make progress in this area mm. i've mentioned web archiving before so at the british library we've we've been do- making quite a lot of progress with using different types of web crawler to, to experiment with capturing interactive websites mm. um, and we've been using a crawler called conifer um, so anyone anyone interested in digital art might know about rhizome and the work they do with collecting dig- digital art but the browser that, that's been developed for that can also be used for interactive fiction so that's what we've been trying it with but where we've also made progress is by working with studios so working with Inkle to collect 80 days and having this meaningful working out how we can collect it often it's easier for us to collect um, say the source code for PC rather than say anything app based but it's working out what's possible and, and doing it in collaboration but I think industry definitely needs to try to engage with and work with other partners to try to preserve things you've mentioned video playthroughs and that's something that we're really looking at at the moment and I know it's not quite the same as preserving an actual virtual world it's not it's not the same but but preserving playthroughs is at least it's a it's some step of trying to capture something so we're calling this enhanced curation okay we do have a a few we've made um three playthrough videos that we've got in in the digital storytelling exhibition at the library we've worked with um, a phd student to make these and the aim is not only will they help the interpretation in the gallery for people who might not have played these games before so we've 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 made them for 80 days we've made one for astrologaster and we've made one for wolves in the walls but we're hoping that if we add these playthrough videos into the library's collections that save researchers in the future if 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 these works don't exist they and they can watch a playthrough at least it provides some sort of understanding of of, of these works what it was yeah yeah how interesting well you've uh, you've mentioned your fourth title there so it seems like a good time to, Was that to a good come segue? to it good segue yeah tell us about this one so so wolves in the walls is is my fourth choice You heard it too. You do, don't you? Hello. (laughs) But up here, 
loudest, especially in the dark. You did it! You got proof! We have to go show Mom. You think there's what in the walls, dear? Wolves. Who told you there were wolves in the walls? Pig puppet. No, but we heard them. It can't be wolves, Loopy. Did you see that? It can't possibly be wolves. Because you know what they say. When the wolves come out of the walls, it's all over. Everybody knows this. You believe me, don't you? So this is another literary adaptation based on on the children's book by Neil Gaiman and, and Dave McKean, and it's created by Fable for virtual reality. So, so, so for the Rift, what what I liked about this is so so you interact with Lucy, who's the main ca- character. She she can see wolves here and see wolves in, in the walls of her house but her family can't no. so you enter the game and it's really quite sweet how you enter the game you draw around your hand in chalk and then you enter the world you're there to be I suppose confident might feel a wrong word I don't know join Lucy and in, in trying to navigate with her family what's what's going on but what I really like like in this in this story is there's activities in the book that obviously if you're reading a picture book um, you can't do those activities but in the VR game you can take pictures with the Polaroid camera you can there's a colouring in activity so you get to do colouring virtual colouring in with Lucy you get to help her mum make jam and I just kind of it's it's quite gentle in a way and, and, and I really picked this because I thought there might be people interested in VR but not quite understanding whether it's for them and I and I thought that this is quite a mm. gentle okay it's got a bit of a sinister edge I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not but, but this kind of adaptation of a children's book many people would be familiar with the narrative from the book or they mm. might have gone and seen the theatrical production and because they having it in, in VR is just really interesting new development for this story. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I have, I have to say I haven't played it. Is it is only available in VR, is it? It is. Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. Um, yeah. So it is, it's in three chapters, um, but it's right. yeah on on the rift. So you mentioned earlier that you're you're co-creator of this uh, new exhibition called uh, Digital Storytelling, which runs from June through to uh, October. Did you say? Yep, so yeah, digital yeah. storytelling runs until the 15th of October. And it's, you're sort of, I suppose, the premises that you evolve, exploring how evolving technologies have changed, how writers write and how readers read, which is why video games are in- included. How, how did you go about choosing, you know, what to, what to put in? That's a good question. So, so like I say, we, we've been really focusing on works that we've been collecting in the library or where we've been working with the writers and working with the creatives that we works that we feel are in scope for UK legal deposits and we've been collaborating and we really wanted to showcase the progress that we've made with this research so far mm-hmm. but we also wanted to show a different a different I suppose the kind of diversity of voices and diversity of technology so we were very keen to have well try to have something for everybody mm-hmm. there's there's some quite literary works in the exhibition we've worked with poets so so poets such as J.R. Carpenter whose work This Is a Picture of Wind is in there. You probably wouldn't call it a video game. It's more of an interactive browser-based weather poem. Right. So J.R. Carpenter calls it a weather poem for phones and it uses weather data to give you dynamic poetry. Amazing. So, so we've we've picked a range a range of works to, to show how writers are using technology in different ways. 
Mm. can be quite creepy. There's a, there's a ghost story in the exhibition called Breathe by Kate Pullinger. It's so so. This is kind of a personalised ghost story. It uses location data. It uses weather data. If you read it at home, it takes a photo of your environment. But we've turned the camera off in the gallery. We thought there might be issues if people ended up taking taking photos of other people in a gallery environment. But but Kate Pullinger's really used these almost like surveillance technologies in a creative way for a, for a writer to produce a ghost story that kind of follows you around. Very cool. So you, I, I mean, it's it's great to see how the British Library is embracing video games. I would say that cultural institutions, um, maybe particularly in the UK, have been quite resistant you know, to, to celebrating video games as works and, and certainly as literary works. That's something that we haven't seen much of. Game City is probably the, one of the few few places, exceptions to that. But uh, you know, it's, it's great to see such a storied uh, institution like the British Library doing that. But why, why do you think there has been this resistance historically? I think there's been a lot of progress, certainly in the last 10 years. So, so as I mentioned, I first, first met folks working with games in 2012. I think there's been an increasing amount of interest and, and of respect and, and things have been really flipping around. So I've mentioned Now Play This, where I first um, encountered Dan Het's work. Yes. I've been working with Bournemouth University, who run the New Media Writing Prize, and they've, they've been running this for over 10 years. So I I think there has been progress and things are moving on in the right direction. And I I think with any kind of new media, I'm sure film had the same issues when when film was new. It, It it takes a little time. What's quite quite exciting with the digital storytelling exhibition is that we're all that we're working with all of the writers to display their works. And I can't think of an, of another exhibition that we've had at the library where literally it's it's all been living writers that are being displayed and we're working with them. So so that's that's very exciting. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah. Do you, is there um are you commemorating this uh exhibition in any way? Is there sort of a book that's collecting what happened here or We've not we're not produced, but we will be blogging. We're having we're having an events um, season to accompany the exhibition, right? So so we're ha- we're we're having a conference on the seventh of July, quite a scholarly conference. But working writers are coming in to talk about their works and academics, um, and we've got some kind of playful events. I've mentioned the singers from Astrologaster are coming in on the fifteenth of September, but we're having um, a steampunk late party on Friday the thirteenth of October. So so. Cl- Clockwork Watch is is one of the story worlds that's in the digital storytelling exhibition, mostly told through live action role play, theatrical style events, and and, and graphic novels. Um, but we're we're doing an event with them, and we're also showcasing nineteenth century mine, Minecraft. I'm working with academics at Lancaster University. We're building um, a Sherlock Holmes nineteenth century London in Minecraft. <laughs> so we, we're going to have that at the Steampunk Late on Friday, the thirteenth of of October so not a book but an event season lots of other things yeah yeah absolutely if if people want to know how to get along to some of those events do they just hop on the British Library website hop on the British Library website click on digital storytelling and then there's a page that links to the digital storytelling events as well wonderful well this seems like a good time to come to your fifth and your your final choice Tell us about this one. So my final choice is the British Library Simulator by my colleague um, Julia Carla Rossi
British Library Simulator is a short browser-based game I created during the 2020 lockdown using Bitsy, a free game engine developed by Adam Ledoux. In the game, players wander around a virtual pixelated version of the library building in St Pancras, encountering different characters on their way to the reading room. The British Library Simulator was created as a fun way to engage with our audience during the pandemic. To provide an example of the interactive narratives the library is collecting as part of our work on emerging formats, and to make the public aware of the services that we continue to provide even during lockdown, by highlighting the digital content that could be accessed from home. And I've picked this, so, so Julia made basically like a miniature pixelated British library using Bitsy. So Bitsy, um, again, is another free online tool for, that people can use to make games. It's often used in game jams, a bit like how Twine is as well. And you can make these very cute mini games, um, often with like a quite limited colour palette. You make brights and, and you can navigate different environments. It looks very retro. So I was speaking earlier about my childhood and how that was kind of retro. Games that people make with Bitsy these days do look quite retro. It looks like a Game Boy type. It's a uh, very limited colour palette and uh, pi pixel art. And a bit it? blocky. Yeah. yeah, absolutely pixel art. But but you can you could do some quite fun things. And so Julia's built a miniature British library. You start on the piazza. So if anyone's been to the British library, we've got this nice square in front of the library with the statue of Newton. Um, you can go on a virtual tour of the library, experience um, all the things that you can on site including queuing to get in in the morning. It's quite funny. Um, having your bag checked. Uh, having your bag checked, exactly. You, you go in and buy a coffee, go into the information desk. <laughs> but you can learn some facts about the British Library and do a little virtual virtual tour. And it was just quite simple and quite playful. But Julia made this during the first COVID lockdown in 2020. And, and when we couldn't go on site into the library, we thought it was a nice way to, I suppose, kind of share this with the world. People can't visit us in person, but maybe they can visit us virtually Yeah, um, and, and made this work. And it really is just quite delightful. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, I had a play of it. It's very sweet. Can you get into the reading rooms uh, in the game? I would need to check again. I know you can talk about. I I know you can talk. Someone did ask whether you could go into the basements, and 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 you and you can't get into the basements. But obviously, if you visit the British Library in St Pancras, you wouldn't be able to get in the basements. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you can only get in the reading rooms if you've got. Uh, you've got to sign up for a card and take two forms of ID and all of that. Reader so. registration, absolutely. So, so you need to go to reader registration and become a become a reader. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Okay, well, the, people can get, play that game and plan their visit to your exhibition then, can't they? And uh, figure out the layout of the uh, <laughs> of the real library for when they get there. It's quite easy to find the exhibition galleries. They're, they're kind of straight straight there when, when you go in. Oh, wonderful. Okay, so let's have a look at your console then. So we've got 80 Days, See You Later, uh, Astrologasta, Wolves in the Walls, and the British Library Simulator, very on brand, very good. <laughs> and um, we need a we need a name for your console to market to the world. What would you like to call it, Stella? I'd like to call my console Bookshelf Portal. 
Very nice. Feels a bit cheesy, but I really do feel that libraries, they, they really are portals to new worlds. Yeah. Um, within books, you can travel the world and travel back in time. And obviously, you can do that with video games. Um, so, so I've mentioned with the examples, 80 Days Traveling the World with Phileas Fogg nice. or Astrologaster, where you can go back to Elizabethan times with Simon Foreman. So I know I know portals are a bit of a cliche in, in the world of video games, but I, I thought I thought it'd be a good title for my... Yeah, well, that hasn't been a console with the word portal in it for sure. So uh, they're not. I, I, I thought there might have been. So I thought, oh no, does everyone kind of portal in in their title? So I'm yeah. glad there hasn't. Okay, just before I let you go, Stella, one, I have to say one of my favourite rooms in the British Library is the um, is it known as the Treasures Room or the Room of Treasures or something like that? Anyway, you sort of go in and under glass they've got all these amazing literary things like look, Jane Austen's writing desk. I think is in there, and they've got some of the earliest manuscripts from Shakespeare. What's your what's your f- you know, recommendation that a visitor goes and looks at in that room? Have you got a favourite artefact? I probably don't have a favourite. And you mentioned Jane Austen's writing desk. What I was going to mention is some of our treasures have been digitised in 3D. Oh, they have? Um, and they're on they're on sketch, sketch fab. So you can go and rotate and move them around. <laughs> what I do like is we've got an amazing collection of globes, including celestial globes. And these have been, like I say, digitised in 3D. And so you can virtually spin them. So if you go on the British Library's website yeah. and look at our historic globes collections, you can virtually spin them. Often there is at least one glo- globe in the Treasures Gallery, but obviously in the gallery, you can't go and spin that because can't spin it's, it, yeah. it's, it's every, things are behind glass. So I think for me, it's like when you can digitise treasures, and especially if they're 3D objects, and then you can manipulate the 3D object. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. We've got- Can you go, just a quick question on the Jane Austen's desk that you digitise. Is that something that people could uh, theoretically download and put in their own game? Um, I would have to check the rights. So on the, the, the rights information, some of that me, I would have to, I'd have to check on Sketchfab because they've all been released under different licences. Okay, but it might be possible. Absolutely. And, and and what I'm hoping in the future is the library does more 3D dig- digitisation, that, that if people did want to use the 3D models in creative ways to contact the library. I would absolutely love to see the models used in interactive virtual environments and video games. That would be a dream. I know there is a market for Jane Austen games. I've, I've, yeah, yeah. I don't know whether you've heard of the game Ever Jane. Uh, I, uh, I haven't, no. You've not heard of Ever Jane. There's two. Oh, I won't go into this, but I have had speakers from Ever Jane come and speak at events in the library before. But no, there is. There's a whole world of Jane Austen games out there. That's so cool. Well, we can hopefully expect to see Jane Austen's desk in, uh, you know, Kratos's, you know, heart or something in God of War. That would be quite funny. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. I'll say this has been great. Thank you so much for for chatting to me. And um, I'm sure lots of people who listen to this will will get along and see the new exhibition. So thank you. Thanks, Simon. Thank you so much to my guest, Stella Wisdom. The Digital Storytelling Exhibition is now on at the British Library. Uh, So that's the British Library. You can get to it by taking the tube to King's Cross. um, And uh, it's a short walk from there. If you're not visited before, you should definitely do that. It's a great place to take your laptop or a bit of paper and do some writing or just wander around. It's got a lovely atmosphere there. Uh, Big, open, spacious 
as you heard in our discussion there, you need a, a reader's ticket if you want to get into the the reading rooms, which are really quiet where you can get lots of work done. But you can also just sit in the main foyer. There's loads of tables and chairs and things. Good place to work. The Digital Storing, Storytelling Exhibition is open until Sunday the 15th of October 2023. It costs £9 for a full price ticket. If you're a member, you get in for free. If you're over the age of 60, it's £4.50. If you're a young person, uh, between the well, if you're a child, between the ages of 0 and 11, you get in for free. Uh, if you're 12 to 17, it's £4.50. Or if you're 18 to 25 it's also £4.50. You can go, you can go play some of the games that are on display there. So some of them have been released like 80 Days, an absolute stone cold classic, which you should download immediately for your phone or your PC and play that. Uh, some of them are yet to be released. For example, Shella Ramanan, the previous My Perfect Console guest, the game she's working on, Windrush Tales, that is, I think, playable or at least viewable at the exhibition so get yourself along take a look at that i appreciate that um this is quite london centric and we've had quite a few london centric episodes so we'll try and do some uh, speak to some guests from some other parts of the uk as well in coming weeks in fact i've recorded a couple so never fear if you live in the north or somewhere else uh, we'll be expanding the geography, the range of My Perfect Consoles guests uh, in coming weeks. But for anyone who can get to London or if you're doing a day trip or if you live there already, get along to the British Library's Digital Storytelling Exhibition. Uh, you may have noticed there a returning appearance from my dear friend Ed Hawkins, the opera singer. Um, of course, Dan Hetz, game seer later, um, does not have any audio or music as as far as I'm aware um, and so yes we just uh, did the same trick from the Sam Barlow episode last week whereby uh, I asked Ed to record some of the lines from Dan's uh, wonderful and moving game um, so thank you to Ed for doing that if you want to find out more about Ed you can visit his website edwardhawkinsbase.com uh, if you're making a video game and you're looking for a voice actor, lots of video voice actors listen to this podcast, but uh, and I'm sure they would be only too glad to chat to you about making an appearance. Ed, I know, would be up for doing that. What an incredible voice he's got, so why not drop him a line through his website if you are looking for someone to lend a deep, gravelly voice to your video game. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ed. Thank you as well to those of you who have written me, written to me. Many of you loved last week's episode with Sam Barlow, um, which is great. Uh, lots of interactive fiction fans uh, writing, saying how pleased they were to, to hear Sam discuss some of those little or lesser known titles from the 80s. If you go on to the My Perfect Console Twitter, I put up some links for where you can play some of Sam's choices. Uh, some of them are available free on the internet. You can just go along and mine forever voyaging. Uh, for example, it's on their portal uh, and aisle. Three of the games that Sam picked are all available to play online. And you can just go on uh, Twitter and find the links there. Click through and have a go of those games if you'd like to. 
Um, yeah, and thank you for all your kind comments. Many of you have written in to say how much you enjoyed that. And even uh, people who had no interest in text adventures or interactive fiction writing in to say that they found Sam's description of those games and the appeal that they held for him uh, extremely compelling. So, yeah, thank you. It's nice, isn't it? Got loads of diversity. I think Stella's choices as well this week. Um, a very different range of games uh, to some of the others that we've had on here. Uh, it just shows the breadth and variety in the video game medium, doesn't it? It's not all FIFA and Call of Duty, although, of course, there's nothing wrong with those games either. Uh, don't come at me, Activision or EA. Um, I've been playing Armored Core 6, the new game from so from software. Hidetaka Miyazaki's studio that he is now director of in Japan. Uh, lots of guests have picked um, the Dark Souls games and games in that series before. Armored Core is a return to, uh, to From Software's early roots. That was the game series that they were making early on. It's sort of bipedal tanks, mecha as they're known in anime anime fighting one another all of that it's really hard oh my gosh i got stuck so many times uh but a pretty spectacular game as well at the same time um but yeah much more old school i would say than the Souls series anyway i'm playing that at the moment that's why i bring it up if you're interested in seeing which uh guests have been on the show and what get what games they've chosen and how they've chosen to name their consoles you can do that by visiting the uh, my Perfect Console Spreadsheet Royale, which lists all of the guests and their games and also has links to the episodes and all sorts of things. Um, if you head to the Patreon page, so that's patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole, then you will see I've got it pinned at the top and you can just click on there and you can have a little read. If you want to, editing permissions, just request them and uh, then you can pitch in with adding information and data as and when it comes up. An interesting little thing to read at. Maybe we'll do some like infographics at the end of the year or something. We'll see, see what happens. But anyway, it's good that we're collating that information for quick reference. And you can also sort to see what the most chosen games have been and all of that. Speaking of Patreon, if you'd like to support the podcast, then just head along there. Become a supporter and uh, you will get lots of benefits. You get your episodes early and ad-free. You get to join in with the community. You get previews of who the guests are going to be a month in advance. Um, and you get some bonus content. I'm going to be trying out some... Uh, I, I have been recording uh, little bonus interviews with some of the guests with questions suggested by Patreon supporters. Those will be coming out soon. I'm also going to be trying some other bonus episode content for example uh in september i'll be attending the tokyo game show i'm thinking of maybe just doing a little episode from there just wandering around telling you what i can see there tgs is something that's quite difficult to get to so uh, because i'll be there maybe i'll share some of that info anyway we'll we'll do some experiments see what works what doesn't what people enjoy all of that stuff either way it would be great to have you as a supporter to help the podcast grow and keep going. And as ever, please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends. Um, that would be great. OK, I think that's probably enough from me for now. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Something a little bit different there, but great to hear from uh, a wonderful British institution about how they are working with and uh, investigating, exploring and reinterpreting video game material. Uh, wonderful to see uh, the National Library doing that 
And um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. If you are a game maker and you'd like the British Library to have a copy of your game, then investigate that. Stella gave out the link. Um, so go on to that part of the website and uh, yes, submit your stuff. If you work for a big company, you should be doing that too. Um, yeah, it's great if this stuff is archived because the video game industry is not good at upholding and looking after its past as we've discussed lots in previous episodes so yeah if you work for one of the big companies and you'd like to see your work preserved in the library that is a great way to do it get in contact with Stella or the team there and see how you can partner okay I will be back again next week with another guest there are five choices and one more perfect console till then goodbye I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.